Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello. Welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival 2022 generally and our session today with acclaimed novelist Steve Tolt specifically. My name is Sarah Krasnstein. I'm the author of The Trauma Cleaner, The Believer, and the recent quarterly essay, Not Waving Drowning, Mental Illness and Vulnerability in Australia. Before we get started today, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, which was never ceded, and pay my respects to their elders and all First Nations elders, past, present, and emerging. So, with that, we begin. Steve Toltz is an Australian novelist. A fraction of the whole, his first novel was published in 2008 and shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. His second novel, Quicksand, was published in 2015 and won the 2017 Russell Prize for Humor. Shortly after his publication, Steve relocated to LA to work as a screenwriter, where he has written on major Hollywood productions. His third book, Here Goes Nothing, tells the story of Angus Mooney, a mostly reformed criminal narrating from a disappointingly familiar afterlife where he longs for his wife, Gracie, an audacious, controversial marriage celebrant, largely unburdened by the need to be liked. Angus watches helplessly as Gracie is seduced by his killer. I'm not giving anything away. This is on the cover. A terminally terminally ill and annoying man named Owen, who had bribed them into letting him die in their house. Meanwhile, death is not less bureaucratic and disheartening than life. Another pandemic is flattening the globe, and he is battered by the same old fears and needs that he's always been limited by. Here Goes Nothing deals in new and frequently hilarious ways with our oldest themes, love, death, belonging, and our self-exacerbated, if not self-created, fears. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Right. Congratulations on the new book. We're about to have a think and a chat about it, which is one of my favorite things to do, but not more than putting down my pencil and losing myself in the world of the story. And that's something that I looked forward to every day that I was reading this book. So that's probably my highest praise. Um, Thank you. Uh, One weird thing about spending years writing a book and layering and folding so much of the world and yourself into it is seeing the product tightly popped under a genre label or hearing it described back at you by others. Did you recognize the book from my summary? And if not, how do you describe it? Um, No, that seemed like a pretty apt description. Um, I saw the other day that that my book got um, included in an encyclopedia um, of science fiction, which I thought was thrilling because for a long time, when I was writing this book, people asked what I was writing. And I, I said, it's sort of science fiction. But then when um, the book went out to publishers yeah. uh, around the world, nobody seemed to think it was science fiction at all. So I, I don't know what it is. Um, I try not to describe it. Um, so I'm glad that somebody else can. Would you mind giving us 
a little reading from it so we could have a bit of a taste of what it is rather than try to describe it. Sure, I'll just give a bit of a short reading. Um, so this book, even though this book is about death and apocalypse and things like that, um, it's also a love story. And so I'm just going to read a little bit. Um, it's the first time that Angus, who is the narrator, um, and he's somebody who believes nothing, um, that he enters the house of Gracie, who is, you know, his soon-to-be wife and widow, um, a woman who believes uh, way too many things. She made her way around the room and lit a number of cheap Virgin Mary candles. Prayer beads hung from nails on the walls along with an ornate wooden crucifix, a Buddhist prayer wheel, paintings of Shiva and Ganesh, a wooden fish, a pentagram, a yin-yang decal, and a ceramic star of David. This is a genuinely confusing room. She stayed close behind me as I examined the mismatched iconography. It all had such an odd cumulative effect, making me think of so many things at once that my mind was, for all practical purposes, empty. What do you believe, she asked. Not much. You must believe in something. Must I? Did I? Most of my beliefs were about beliefs, but it was difficult to put them into words. I explained that it always key to me how belief comes in strange yet predictable pairings how those who are into angels and ghosts are also often anti-vaxxers, convinced that the moon landing was faked, just as the individuals who insisted that crop circles were forms of extraterrestrial communication had an equal faith in trickle-down economics. Gracie looked at me curiously as if she was still waiting for the sound of my voice to reach her ears. I, also, I always believed, I went on, that nearly all the people on Earth are self-mythologizing liars who only have premonitions in hindsight. If you told them, hey, someone was murdered right here in this house, it was only then that they said, yeah, I knew I felt something. I said I believe that most paranormal occurrences are either too far away to perceive at or too close up to focus on and that it's very suspicious that almost nothing supernatural exists at a critical distance. I said I also believed that life was meaningless, but not worthless, and how that distinction had been enough to get me out of bed in the morning. I believed that gullibility was akin to a disability and should be treated accordingly, and that if everything happens for a reason, those reasons are chance, luck, and chaos. The words seemed to be breaking free of my face almost of their own volition. It was very quiet in the room. Gracie edged closer towards me. I said, I believed that spontaneous combustion was only evidence that if some fucker is determined to set you on fire and sneak off without being seen, he was certain to do so. That there was no such thing as a reliable human witness and that all mystical visions were self-generated, which is why Buddhists didn't get visions of Christ, Christians didn't see the Buddha, and there's not a single solitary instance recorded of a rabbi visited by Mohammed. Mainly, I believed that the very people who think they have special powers lack even the ordinary ones. Yeah. That's it. You're getting a, a round of applause, just letting you know in case that's not coming through. Um, 
So that one, I didn't know which selection Steve would be writing from, reading from. So I'm going to just hop forward a couple of questions and ask the one that um, I think that follows on most easily from that part of the book, which was one of the parts that struck me quite deeply. The terrain of this book and the character of Gracie in particular, with that vast inclusive collection of religious iconography, made me think of something that the critic Harold Bloom said in a Paris Review interview that I once read. This makes me sound better read than I actually uh, am, but it was on belief, and my last book was on belief, and I was reading it in that context. Um, although I would love to casually read Paris Review interviews one day. So the question was, can belief be as individual and idiosyncratic as fiction? And here's what Bloom replied. The religious genius is a dead mode. Belief should be as passionate and individual as a fiction, sorry, belief should be as passionate and individual a fiction as any strong idiosyncratic literary work, but it isn't. It almost never is. Religion has been too contaminated by society, by human hatreds. All religions have always been, perni been pernicious as social, political, and economic entities, and they always will be. So, can you speak about the role of belief, religious or otherwise, in, the, in this book? Yeah, I mean, I think he's right in terms of um, the kind of surprising narrowness of the, I mean, you know, William James wrote this book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, um, which... Uh, was was not about belief, but but about the 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 passions that people felt and um, about religion, and and they themselves weren't that um, varied. And it's the sort of when I came to write about the afterlife, I sort of thought back to you know a thousand years of um, fictional versions of the afterlife and belief, and, and it always struck that while we have this limited imagination, we're not uh, applying it very liberally to versions of the afterlife because they're always uh, either reward or punishment. Um, there's always a, an authority figure. It all, um, they're all kind of versions of the same thing. When I came to write about the afterlife, I sort of thought back to, you know, a thousand years of um, fictional versions of the afterlife and belief, and it always struck that, while we have this limited imagination, we're not uh, applying it very liberally to versions of the afterlife because they're always uh, either reward or punishment. Um, there's always a, an authority figure. It all, um, they're all kind of versions of the same thing, um, which is why I wanted to do something a little bit different as, as, we, as we went along. And I also I chose belief as a way to write um, I guess to write Angus's autobiography, it's very hard on a craft level to write about um, a character's childhood. But um, sometimes you can find a hook. So I found the hook was belief. So when he recounts his childhood, he's basically talking about his first 18 years of life um, and he tells it through the different beliefs that he encountered um, and they all seem to him to be uh, ridiculous and suspicious. Yes. 
That's an interesting, this is not one of my prepared questions, um, but I, it, I just wanted to respond to that because it is such an interesting craft issue that you, that these characters do have a fully formed childhood and that very little of it will be made explicit and having, you know, coming at that through closely held beliefs or cynicisms or disappointments kind of speaks to that that history, I suppose, if I'm understanding correctly, that that's what you're saying. Yeah. Is that something... Well, it's sort of like... Sorry. No, no, go on. Well, yeah, it's sort of... Um, because I wanted to write a book about an atheist who wakes up dead, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to reflect upon all the belief systems that I've encountered in my life you know, the people who swear that they saw the UFOs or all those hokey seances that we had in adolescence. Um, and especially the people that, that believe that, um, that the universe in some way kind of revolves around their own experience, uh, which, is, which is more common than you would think. You know, we're all kind of pattern... Um, pattern-seeking creatures, we, but some, I believe it might be genetic. Some people see the patterns more than other people, which is, you know, on the one extreme, it's kind of, you know, extreme paranoid schizophrenics, and on the other extreme, it's just kind of vaguely religious people who, who, who think that, um, you know, everything happens for a reason, and um, they, can, they can not only find patterns, but also um, find agency. Hmm. I mean, I'm quite jealous of that. I had some experience of it with the people in a nonfiction setting, with the people that I interviewed for The Believer. But it does strike me, and I read it again recently with um, Sam Knight's new book, which is called The Premonitions Bureau. And it's about an actual real-life uh, government department that was set up in Britain after the war to empirically investigate the veracity of people, everyday people's dreams and forebodings. Um, but it, does, it did strike me that that pattern-seeking um, tendency that, you know, we err on the side of certainty and pattern because we're built to run from predators, not really to sit and introspect. But while it does have, you know, links with psychotic illness or mental illness, it's also the basis of all rational thought and all creative endeavor. So, you know, I think as, as writers, we constantly dealing with that. Is it something as part of your process that when you're kind of in the world of the story that you're working on, that you are seeing things around you that are related to that topic? Or are you more kind of siloed in, in, in the process itself? Yeah, I mean, I think the difference of what you're talking about is, a, is the difference between an internal locus of control and an external locus of control. Because if you, I mean, yes, you need the patterns as a, as a creating, as a creative person or as a writer, you know, you're the one who is in control of, of drawing disparate elements together. Um, whereas someone with a religious mindset or a spiritual mindset might be just seeing the patterns and, and that to them are coming from an, from an outside source. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is the, the joy of writing um, and creating a story is is putting things that don't belong together together and making the patterns um, that don't exist. Yeah. 
You know, it's sort of the difference between um, thinking that you've discovered uh, a meaning and the difference um, and creating meaning. You know, don't get the luxury of, of believing too strongly in our own confirmation biases. I think we kind of have exactly, to create them yeah. and then the readers will tell us, will give us the confirmation. I love talking about craft and process and we will be circling back to that, but I am now returning to my chronology uh, because God forbid sure. I'd be too creative. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about where the initial inspiration that crystallized into this book uh, came from? and then how long it took to write. Yeah, there's, a, there's like, I mean, I could give you about 10 different answers to that question, because there isn't one, yeah. um, but I'll give you, say, three. Good. Uh, we'll take it. So the first one was like in uh, 1999. Uh, I walked out of a movie, um, the movie Magnolia, and... Um, which is a story about, which is a, a film in which it goes from character to character. And I remember thinking it would be fun to write a story where we go from character to character. One of those characters dies and then we keep following them from character to character, even into the afterlife. Yeah. And then, um, and so that's kind of sat in my head for about 17 years. Um, and then uh, I also generally just come up with uh, beginnings. I have a file of about 20 beginnings of books and stories, um, but I don't really know where they go. So this one, I really did have what's um, essentially the beginning of this book, which is uh, a couple live in a house and a man knocks on the door, says that he's dying, that he grew up in that house and he would very much like to spend his final dying days uh, dying in his childhood bedroom. Um, so I sort of started to write that and I wrote that story without really knowing where it was going. And then when, you know, things took a, took a murderous turn, uh, I realised that wasn't the end of the story and I, I could kind of merge it with that other, um, with that other uh, idea that had been floating in my head. Um, but usually I'm just kind of writing, um, a character, like I wrote Gracie, um, before I wrote a lot of the other stuff. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, she's like a wedding celebrant and there was actually a period where I considered being a wedding celebrant, um, during the years where I just wasn't, you know, I was working as a, like a TV extra uh, around Sydney and uh, my friends were getting married and I was the bed at someone's wedding and then I was the MC at another person's wedding and then somebody else asked me and I was like, no, no. And then I thought, well, maybe this, this could be a side gig. And I looked up the sort of courses at TAFE but ultimately decided that like potentially ruining somebody's wedding day was too stressful. Uh, so, yeah, so all of these things kind of... Um, you know, they develop. It's like growing a, something in a lab. It, it evolves slowly over time. And, you know, I did take long pauses during this book. But I, and I, to be honest, I wrote most of it in, in sort of late 2018, 2019. So with that timing, 
There are, there are not one but two pandemics in this book. The, the major pandemic is called the good boy disease, which I love. 100% fatality rate. The one uh, before that has features that might sound quite familiar, given our current moment. Uh, but both are illuminating for showing, uh, as your version of the afterlife shows, our infinite capacity for weaponizing what should have been an opportunity for community and connection. I read that you were cursed by prescience or luck, having already started writing on the theme of a pandemic pre-COVID. So A, is that right? And B, did COVID itself impact kind of the narrative or your work process? How did you deal with that? Yeah, so I wrote the pandemic in 2019. Yeah, so I did, I mean, I, so I spent a lot of that year and that was also just a kind of a problem-solving um, exercise because for a while, while Grace, while uh, Angus was in the afterlife and Gracie and Owen were in the house, I just kind of had them kicking around the house and not doing much. And I realized, well, this is a bit boring. Um, so we need some kind of, I thought, oh, actually the phrase came, apocalypse on earth, revolution in heaven. And that was kind of a brief that I set myself to write for. But I wasn't sure what kind of apocalypse I wanted. Uh, and then, you know, going through the list in, in early 2019, uh, I thought, well, nuclear war, who wants to, who wants to read about that? Um, who wants to write that? Um, it's too quick. And then, um, yeah, and then, you know, an asteroid hitting the earth again, um, too quick. But uh, a plague, we haven't had a plague, in, you know, a good one in a, in a hundred years. So that seems like a good idea. So I read lots of books on plagues and zoonotic diseases. And um, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't do a lot of uh, factual research generally for my books. I do a lot of thematic research, but, um, you know, if I was going to write about it, I realized I needed to just at least have some lingo. I really, you know, uh, struggled over getting that right. And then it was kind of annoying to just turn on the news and hear every newsreader just sort of saying words, which I could have just lifted verbatim and put into my book. Uh, but I didn't end up changing it then, and yeah. What was the second question? Uh, did, did it change the writing process? But do you think that you might have jinxed us, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I just think we were we were so overdue. We just didn't know how overdue we were. Um, so we you know we've just lived in a in a, uh, a weirdly kind of barren um, period where uh, you know we should. Probably, considering how globalized we are, we have been having a pandemic, you know, one every decade. And we sort of have, you know, with SARS, and, but they were just kind of burnt out. But I, anyway, I do that's what we have to look forward to. There are moments still, I mean, it's funny how quickly the, the human tendency to normalize whatever's going on kicks in. But there are moments, I'm sure you have them too, and everyone here has them too, where you just read the paper or you watch the news and you think like, shit, it just looks like satire. Like imagine telling ourselves three years ago that we'd have public announcements like this. It seems like, you know, a sketch comedy. Sure, or I mean, satire or, or retro, you know, I mean, yeah. it's like 
Russian ground wars and it does, yeah, it seems everything old is new, new very again. retro. Um, humor, humor can have a distancing effect or conversely a disarming effect. This novel has been described as comedic, but while it is indeed consistently very funny, it uses humor to do something very serious, I believe. Would you agree with that? Or do you mostly just actually set out to write a straight up hilarious book? And can you speak a bit more generally about the uses or effectiveness of humor in the novel? Yeah, I mean, I think that the humor that I, the humorous kind of vein that I write in is just something that I'm like stuck with. So I, it sort of emerged at the same time as, you know, my writing emerged, sort of the formation. Uh, so anything that I write just comes out more or less in that style and I can exaggerate it or I can tone it down. Um, and whether it's kind of disarming or not, I guess it depends on how horrific the subject is I'm writing about. Because, um, you know, I think what makes it somewhat uh, alarming to some people, I mean, it's, it's always interesting to me. You know, I finished this book and when I gave it to people and, they were, and the, the first reactions were, wow, it's really dark, um, I was really surprised <laughs> Because I guess even though I'm writing about an apocalypse and suffering and all that kind of thing, I mean, it, I have such a fun time writing it. Uh, I think it's just generally a kind of a light, a light breezy uh, thing that I've created. Um, so, yeah, like, a, like the humor is just inextricably linked with the style of, um, you know, what happens when I put a pen to paper um and so yeah it's uh it's like yeah it's it's just part part of um my writing process yeah uh and it's funny how kind of the the voice is what the voice is once you find it i mean it takes a while can you tell us about that maybe how did you come to find that voice that is your voice and you know I always say I only have one voice and it took me ages to find it but once I found it that's all I got um how, what was that process like for you and when when in your writing kind of career writing life did you hit it I think it's a combination of uh myself and my influences okay. In the same way, you have like someone like uh, Woody Allen, who is like, you know, is is the the particular style that he has is because he liked, you know, Ingmar Bergman and the Marx Brothers and who and whoever he would have been um, anyway, and the combination of the three becomes that particular thing. Um, so for me, it was. Um, I mean, when I was younger, I was kind of trying to write, like, well, not even trying to write, but uh, imitating Roald Dahl types character. Uh, I mean, he's kind of well known for his, you know, twists, twist endings, but actually he, um, what I liked about him as a kid was, and I'm talking about like the adult stories, yeah. um, were his obsessive characters. Yeah. So um, he, was, he, he did lots of really great character portraits. 
Um, so I kind of wrote in that style and then I remember being very influenced by Catch-22 mm. um, and then, you know, wrote some really ridiculous things when I had like the Russians and Thomas Mann and, um, you know, there's nothing worse than like a 20-year-old writing like a 19th century you know, <laughs> Australian. Um, but then, uh, yeah, in, as I kind of started to write more seriously at the end of my 20s, it was discovering kind of um, Borges and the French writer Celine um, and just all these kind of influences, the American writer John Fonte and uh, the, you know, every writer has like a formative uh, period and so these were the, yeah, these were the writers that were kind of, um, I guess, combining in some way in my head and then uh, mixed with the type of stories that I wanted to tell and then that's just how it, it emerged. Yeah. In the scenes of life and the afterlife, there's a witty bureaucracy bureaucratization and a homogenization of our joys and our sufferings and our faiths, the stories that we tell ourselves to ameliorate our fears, or try to, anyway. There's reference to the nuanceless, combative, cynical, communicative norms of social media, which all function as a blanket too small to cover human vulnerability, while showcasing the flattening that comes as a result of playing to any audience, of choosing being liked over being right. It strikes me that since 2008, when Fraction of the Whole came out, so much has changed in the ways we communicate, personally and kind of collectively and politically. What impact has that had, if any, on this latest novel, Steve? And then has it changed how you view the role of the novel more generally um, and the writer's kind of role in society? I'm, um, I'm in L.A. at the moment, and I, I went recently. Uh, a friend of mine worked on a climate handbook for screenwriters, and so I went to the launch of this event, and at the event, the, um, the, the, the way that they launched this, this handbook, which was to give to kind of all TV and film writers, was to say that um, they were sick of being told every time they wanted to tell a climate change story that it was science fiction because their view was that like every story should be a climate change story um, because that's the world we live in. And I don't know if I 100% agree with that, but it did make me think that uh, in the same way, every story needs to be a social media story in some way because, I mean, that really is the world we live in. Like, I mean, every I don't know a single adult who isn't in some way, doesn't in some way have an unhealthy relationship to their phone uh, or to social media, to, um, you know, 24-hour news. Um, so I think it, it permeates everything and it has changed the way we think um, and it's taken, a, you know, a giant toll on uh, the human ability to focus. Um, and so to write anything... I mean, you sort of have you. You we're at the stage now where you have to kind of write a historical novel in order to get away from it. I mean, in the, even in this book, I made that when they get to the afterlife, um, 
that all technology, my kind of solution was that all technology uh, was only for military use so that nobody could have a phone. Just so I could really, I wrote that just so I just didn't have to write another fucking phone. Yeah. because otherwise it's, it's so, you know, the internet, you know, it just changes everything. Yeah. It, what, was that kind of, I'm thinking at 2008 and the process of Fraction of the Whole, was a little bit of that kind of creeping in with the normalization of phone, like mobile phones? Um, I, I wrote A Fraction of the Whole, like a lot of it when I was living in Spain and France, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't even have a computer for a lot of that. So I was kind of writing by hand and I didn't have a phone. So I was really free at that oh, time. So Do you still write um, longhand? Do you still yeah, write? I still write uh, by hand. Yeah. Awesome. I fill notebooks and then I, um, I used to spend, you know, weeks transcribing, but now I just kind of, uh, put them into like a dictation software in my phone so I can I, I read them it it's sort of and then I email it to myself it's a good balance between old school and new school um yeah okay moving on to some craft stuff thinking of um your screenwriting alongside the literary fiction does writing in one mode it, it has it enhanced the other, or are they completely different brains? Um, it might not seem believable, but I sort of feel like the question could even be like if I worked in a cafe and you asked me how was my, uh, you know, my cafe work influenced my novel because I it's such a different job. I don't consider it. Or perhaps if I wrote a cookbook, um, as, you know, wrote recipes down and how that would be similar to or affecting fiction because it, it's so different. Um, so, yeah, most of, like, writing for TV, which I've only done a little bit of, but um, is it's 90% a brainstorming job. So you just, it's very social. You're just talking about story and character. It's very fun. But um, it doesn't, yeah, there's nothing similar to sitting alone in a room uh, writing sentences. Can you um, share kind of, assuming that you have such a thing, some insights from, you know, a normal day or your routine um, and whether that's kind of stayed the same across each of the books or whether you're more kind of casual about it, a bit of the writer's day on, on a writing day? I mean, I write it in like two-hour blocks and I just try and fit as many of those two-hour blocks into a day as possible. And every two-hour block kind of needs to be in a different location. Oh, wow. So I will write like two hours at the kitchen, two hours in the cafe, two hours in the library, or it might be in bed on the couch at the beach. Um, I mean, that's the good thing about not writing on a laptop is you can be very mobile. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I have to squeeze that into, yeah, obviously when I was uh, writing my first book, I, I did not have to do it uh, during elementary school hours, primary <laughs> school hours, which I do now. And, you know, and, of course, during lockdown when the schools were closed, I just, you know, I had to take, I had to take recess and lunch. Um, 
Yeah, so it's uh, it's kind of it has changed, and now I I used to be able to work at sort of two a.m. You know, when I was younger, and now I'm just trying to keep bankers hours. Very civilized. I think all writers should get recess and lunch. Um, yeah. Or everybody should. Um, do you think there's such a thing as writer's block? Um, I'm sure there is such a thing as writer's block uh, for some writers. Uh, but luckily, I don't tend to have it. I like have too many ideas, too many stories to write, too little time. Um, I have my own issue is that I'm just really slow and everything I, I generally write is terrible at first. So, um, yeah, if it, if, so that's kind of my, every, you know, I think every writer has their own issues and mine is just uh, like my first drafts are very, very bad. And then I, it's, it's kind of a painstaking process of rewriting. It's kind of, I writing for me is like sculpting, except I have to also make the stone. Yes. Yes. I think you're in good company because I, I was not there this morning, but I saw it on Twitter. Apologies. Um, Michelle DeKretzer and Christos Jolka said the same thing about their first draft. So it seems to be part of part okay. of the process of, of uh, doing very yeah. good work. I think of, I, I always start my first draft. I don't have a first draft. I have a zero draft. I think it takes off mm. some of the stress when you're really just getting the, the material into the room. So then you can start. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Idea. Um, small tricks to, you know, to make it less terrifying. Um, who sees your first or earliest good drafts or good enough drafts? Yeah, I don't um, show anything until I've finished. Ooh. So no, like I, there's never anyone seeing any 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 work in progress. Um, so it's kind of you know, many years. Um, I would generally show it first um, to my sister, who's a really good editor, um, and then then it goes to my agent as like it then basically it's as I get it as good as I can or at least I can't um yeah I can't improve it without the process that I would really like to do which is uh bury it in the garden for six months <laughs> and then dig it up do an edit bury it again dig it up do one more edit um and then send it out that's what I would do with every book uh, because it's sort of like um, I always think that a, like a writer uses time like a painter uses light uh, to see. Like a, you actually can't see it without um, having these blocks of time. Um, it's the way that you can stare at something. You know, you like you've spent I've spent years, let's say, on a, on something. And then, you know, you show it to someone and they just point out sort of grammatical errors, typos and, and things that don't make sense. And you wonder, like, how could I have looked at that a thousand times and not seen it? And then, I mean, you've probably also been through, once you go through an editorial process, um, you know, they, that goes through a number of stages. So it goes through one editor and then a copy editor. And then still, like, days before it's getting locked off, they're still finding like crazily obvious errors that it, there's no reason in the world that nobody saw it, but nobody saw it. Yeah. Um, 
And the only thing that can really um, mitigate that is either time or like multiple sets of eyes. Yeah, this is, I think, the, one of the biggest distinguishing factors of moving from like the reader obsessed with right with reading books and the writer writing books is you have no ability to sanctimoniously enjoy a typo ever again because you're just filled with such dread that that karma is going to come back to bite you in the bum when inevitably your <laughs> book goes out and there's something that you didn't see so yeah um, yeah I, I i occasionally get um get emails from readers who <laughs> graciously correct some of the usually like anachronisms that in my book oh, gosh. the joys well on that so much of a book involves the highly private endeavor of keeping a world alive in your head for years at a time and then boom it's out there in the world you're told it no longer belongs to you and readers have opinions especially if you've you're a curious member of the literary species who happens to have been shortlisted for a booker. So how do you deal with all of that? Do you, do you read reviews? How kind of open are you, you know, to that process of the way in which the work is received? Yeah, I mean, I do sometimes read reviews. I don't, all, I don't always, and I can always just kind of look at a headline and go, yeah, I don't think I'm going to look at this one. Um, but... I'm kind of generally unfazed because I feel like I lived too long uh, without publishing. You know, I was not like a 20-year-old, so I was kind of early 30s when um, A Fraction of the Whole came out. So I'd been writing a good 10 years and you sort of have to hold your own opinion of yourself if you're going to go down that road for so long. You know, you have to kind of like, yeah, if you're going to be, you, yeah. So by the time I get published, I feel like um, both criticism and praise have like a little tiny effect on me, but it's really small. I'm like, I'm like oh, well, that, that's good. Or, oh, well, um, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. The the, the most important thing was um, getting it out and published so that I could begin something new. Yeah, I mean, I I might you know if I was independently wealthy, there's a definitely a version of my life where I would be writing these books and then just putting them in a vault because <laughs> um, I really do like to finish them, um, and then I really like to get onto writing something else. Um, yeah, the quote, I'm sure I'll butcher it. I have it above my desk, though. Um, it's Andy Warhol saying, you know, make art, and while people are deciding whether or not they like it, make more art. So it's kind of the only uh, little bit of... Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I w we've talked a little bit about influences, comedic influences, literary influences, but I would be curious to know about your kind of reading habits generally or when you're, you know, kind of in the writing, in the like pointy end of the writing process specifically. Um, and this comes off the back of a podcast that I really like listening to called Backlisted. And one of the hosts once said uh, a very interesting thing about rereading. 
And he said, books are like people, they betray you. Uh, and I thought, oh shit, like, you know, when you go back and you read something that was really foundational in your, your love of books or of writing, and then you're like, meh, I don't know why I love this so much. Or, you know, sometimes it's even better than you remembered it or you get something that you didn't understand as a 20-year-old reading Thomas Mann. Um, so with that very long introduction, your reading habits, kind of, do you read while writing or do you read off topic or how, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I always read while writing. In fact, I can't write without reading um, because, you know, it's sort of a Saul Bellow quote that a, like, a writer is a reader driven to emulation. Yeah. And um, and I, I definitely have that. Like, I wouldn't be a writer if I didn't love to read. And, um, and so when, when I have gone through a long period without reading, uh, I don't even get in, I don't sort of get the, in the idea to write. So as soon as, but it's quite hard because as soon as I pick up a book and I read one great sentence, uh, it's very distracting because then I have to put it down and pick up a pen and really want to try writing um, something. So, yeah, so I, I read and I also like, there are definite writers and I really respect this, but I just, I don't have the same um, thing, which is a lot of writers don't like to read while they're writing because they don't want to be influenced and they don't want their own voice to be polluted. But um, I feel like my, my book is just filled with toxins of other writers <laughs> and I like enjoy that process. To me, it's kind of, uh, it's the, it's sort of the same process. I don't really separate it. So if I am go somewhere with my notebook, I'm always carrying a book as well or uh, three or five. Um, and, yeah, whatever, in the same way that, you know, if I'm, if I'm wandering a city and writing, it might, the story might change depending where I go and the same way with depending on what I'm reading. So yeah, it's very much uh, like um, a like a, an inhaling and exhaling process. Yes, yeah. Um, I'm aware that we have about three or four more minutes before I'm going to th throw it out to you guys for questions, and anyone listening remotely can start typing in their questions, and I'll see them on the screen here. So I've got two more questions for Steve, and then we'll we'll do that. Um, I know we have some aspiring writers today in the audience. What is the worst writing advice you have ever received, and how did you know that it was BS? <laughs> so normally you ask for the good advice. Well, I know, I know. I guess, um, you know, I guess I never got any writing advice, and that's the thing is I didn't study writing in any formal way. Um, and, you know, I never met a writer until after I was published, um, you know, at a writer's festival. Um, so, yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I, I can't even tell you any bad advice because I've, I've never, I've never kind of been into a writing course or, um, yeah, or had any, had anyone give me advice. I mean, by, by the time that I would have been exposed to it, I was already published and, I probably wouldn't have listened. That's awesome. Well, do you have any good advice then for anyone who might need it? 
Well, I mean, if you were starting out, you know, you have, you, I would say my, my main advice would be is um, be careful what you read. Like, like be divorced from uh, your contemporaries as much as possible. Like don't be, don't be aware of what is being published this year or that, you know, uh, because it's sort of like, um, yeah, in this, in the same way that, um, the differences, let's say, um, you know, there's that Freudian thing that the, the narcissism of small difference, which is usually applied to like ethnic, uh, differences between ethnic groups, but, in the world of writing, it's you could apply it to decades that writers come from. Yeah. It's like why you know why be prejudiced against someone you know just because their books came out in the seventies or the forties yeah. or the eighteen eighties, um, and the likelihood than one really great book coming out a year. I, I mean, it's pretty unlikely. Maybe if there's a few, but. Um, so, if, so in your formative years of reading, which is your formative years of writing, there's like no excuse not to read just masterpiece next to masterpiece. And you're not going to do that by reading like uh, by having 50 or 80% of the books you read are books that came out like that year or the year before. Yeah. Like you just, you're going to be reading a lot of, Mediocre work. It, I think it's, it's wise. And I had heard someone, I don't know where I heard it all, nah, yeah, something similar, which was the mistake of getting trapped too deeply in your current moment and um, yeah. the value of kind of having a longer, a longer view. Um, and also very heartening that you've not had the formal training. I have none myself. And I always feel, oh, it would be nice to have an MFA and be a real writer. And then, you know, but... Just write that you know. That's kind of the only. Yeah, I mean, I I'm sort of slightly jealous of people who did an MFA because they have a like a they they had the community which which yeah. seems fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, my last question is no pressure or anything, but given that these three books, the trilogy of fear as they've been described, is now complete, can you let us know if you're working on anything or what you would like to do next or what comes after for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably going to, um, yeah, I've started to work on a new novel and, um, yeah, when, I, when I've kind of looked, had a kind of an overview of these three books and realised, you know, they are all about fear and, um, but, you know, I kind of, taking a, a, a kind of a, a more bird's eye view of it, I realised that kind of there are, um, my my only interest in fear is as it relates to human behavior, and so I feel like that human behavior is more my main project. So I kind of want to write more. Um, I'm sort of writing more about consciousness and free will and artificial intelligence and things like that, um, which sound hilarious. But we, I'm sure they. You, we might get the science fiction book. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Does anyone have any questions for Steve? I will probably repeat them so that he can hear them. You can come down to the mic, but I can hear you. I can, a thematic link between the, the three novels? The three novels. Yeah. 
So the question is um, a bit more detail on the thematic link between the three novels. Right, well, definitely the thematic link wasn't there from the outset because obviously, like, when I started writing A Fraction of the Whole, I definitely um, had no idea what, you know, first of all, whether I'd even finish it and then what would um, come next. And then when I wrote the second one, I had no idea what the third one would be. Um, so it's sort of as the... the the link, as we were just saying, about fear is the one that, that basically links these books. And it, it sort of came to me. Um, I did know the first book all along was going to be about the fear of death. And then, you know, having um, wanting to write about this period where I was paralyzed, I knew that the second book would be about fear of suffering. And, um, and then I quite, I, you know, I quite deliberately... Um, based on the kind of, you know, my reaction to social media, yeah, I wanted to write uh, in this third book about the fear of um, the opinions of other people, which I think is a huge motivating um, factor. So, yeah, fear is the sort of thematic link, which, you know, and then, you know, there are obviously other um, linkages in sort of like the types of characters that I write and, um, you know, being people who are kind of slightly outside of society. So it's kind of outsider art in a way. Thank you. This one is one of our remote audience questions. I'm going to read it out from the screen. Women tend to critique in writers' groups. Men tend to write in a more solitary fashion. Steve, why do you not use the critique process? This is from Jan. Jan, thank you. I don't know what the critique process is. What do you mean? Um, like we get maybe a in a group, in a writer's group. Although I am, oh, okay. am a woman and do have ne never done that in a writer's group, but I'm more solitary. But anyway, the critique process of a group no, setting think, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I know, I certainly know a lot of guys who do that because um, they did MFAs, and that's part of the workshop process. Right. Um, and so it's, for me, it's just that I never was in that, um, in that world and I didn't know um, uh, any other writers in order to do that. It also takes um, a more generous <laughs> attitude towards who you want to critique and shape your work. Um, maybe I'm like to, I mean, yeah, you just have to, I would have to really respect someone's opinion to be wanting their opinion. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's a great thing to do if you can. Okay. Any other audience? Steve, you write the most wonderful women. Um, so I just wanted to know, do you fall in love with the women that you idealize and write? And do you find it therefore hard to find one as fabulous in real life? <laughs> Good question. Um, yeah, they are de it's definitely, well, Gracie in this book uh, definitely is kind of um, an idealized version. But at the same time, 
it's sort of a creepy question because there's too much of me in <laughs> my female characters. Um, so um, the question is, you know, am I, am I likely to fall in love with myself? I hope not. Um, but yes, you can't find people in real life uh, that have this, those kind, although I give them faults as well. And of course, um, I won't name names, but uh, they're definitely amalgams of different women that I have encountered. Any other questions for Steve? Yes. Uh, while writing, do you ever have to take a short break due to a bout of existential dread? <laughs> um, writing is my break from existential dread. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, writing is always a pleasure and a refuge, and you know, I've always kind of written through. It not, it's not in a way that is sort of therapeutic, but um, more as, I guess, um, not to escape the present, but to escape from, like, the past and the future mm. into the present. Um, because the past and the future, another way of looking at the past and the future is kind of regret and dread. Um, and so writing puts me in the present um, where existential dread is not. Thank you, Steve. We're going to give you a big uh, round Thanks, of applause Sarah. in this room here. A reminder that Steve's books are available from the bookshop. And he can't beam in for signing, but uh, maybe next time around we'll get him in person. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.